Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. Well, good morning. Good morning to everybody here and those that are online. My goodness. Well, today we want to begin by honoring Martin Luther King Jr. I value that we're given a day to reflect and remember a man who fought for peace in nonviolent ways and the powerful ramifications of a life that is lived from a faith in Jesus and a love. And to love is the way that you lead. Um, so we need that now more than ever, don't we? You know, um, Martin Luther King talked about two things that we need to do in order to be free. He says you have to forgive everybody for everything that they've ever done to you, and you have to lose your fear of not how long you live, but how well you live. Now, Martin Luther King lost his fear of death around midnight on January 27th in 1956 when he was about 27 years old. In the midst of all the turmoil that was surrounding the Montgomery bus boycott, he received this phone call threatening that he was going to blow up his home and that they were going to kill him. And MLK said, fears crept up in his soul, and he tried to figure out how could I get out of Montgomery without looking like a coward, because he was wanting to quit, and the fight was not worth it. It was too much of a threat for himself and his family. So he paused, and he prayed, and then he heard this inner voice from God saying, Martin Luther, stand up for truth, stand up for justice, and stand up for righteousness. Now, he could have said no, but he knew that God was in this, and he lived holding to such truths like these, like darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy to a friend. And never succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter. As you press on for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline, using only the weapon of love. Like, wow. So would you join me as we just pray for our nation? Well, God, we just thank you that you are God and that you are God over all of this um, unrest and the pain and the confusion. Lord, we thank you that you are everything that is true and just and pure. And we declare over our nation that your love would be a stronger voice than anything else. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come here on our earth as it is in heaven that there would be freedom and there would be peace in ways that we didn't even know that you could do. So we pray for the continuing of a legacy of love and of, 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 of you going forth and making things right in our world. We bless you and we pray in the name of Jesus, our King and our Savior. Amen. Wow, okay. Well, I, I wanted to... Um, when I was thinking more about MLK and how he lived his life, it reflects so much the purpose of this message today. And although it might seem a little bit strange, I, this last week this, there was that rallying cry that came from a football coach from a TV show a while back from Friday Night Lights. Does anybody remember that? And I don't know how to be a football coach, but I'll try to be as cool as possible. But he would say, Coach Taylor would say, um, clear eyes, full heart, can't lose. Do you guys remember that phrase? Um, and it's just been something I've been feeling like God is saying 
to me, to us. Because in the midst of everything going on in our world, um, to hear those words, God's saying, lift up your head, clear eyes, full hearts. You can't lose. And as Christians, we are to keep clear eyes and a clear focus and a full heart that's just determined to remind us that God, with God we cannot lose what's really important. And that's the purpose of this series on Deeply Formed. You know, we see it in Paul's prayer that was prayed over the church in Galatia. When he said, My dear children, for whom I am again in pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That our faith would not be as shaky or shallow, but we would become more deeply formed by Christ. Because spiritual formation is happening, right? Um, Just like it is to all of our bodies. You know, our physical bodies, they're shaped by what we eat and how much we exercise, how much we sleep. And spiritually, we are shaped by our conversations, what we watch, what we read. And so you are being spiritually formed whether you, whether you want to be or not. The only question is, do I pursue spiritual transformation intentionally or accidentally? And so it leads us to this main question that we are exploring. Who am I becoming? How is Christ being deeply formed in you? So there's a theologian, Dallas Willard. He described this spiritual formation as needing three components. First, it's vision. And that refers to what we need to clearly understand. Do we have clear eyes? What would it look like to allow God to define this area of my life? Or how is God's vision for us, for me, more beautiful than the world's vision? And the problem is, life can be so challenging, right? It's, it can get so confused and we can get discouraged with all that's going on around. So we need to, to make sure to take this first step. Like, what are we really aiming for? And who do I really want to become? You know, I love that Jeremy is asking the youth these questions right now. Like, who do you want to be in five years or ten years from now? Because of the vision that they have for then, you need to start taking those steps now to become that person. So in order to have vision that's clear and clear eyes, we need to do what we talked about last week, ruthlessly eliminate hurry. I, I like it how Holocaust survivor Corey Ten Boom says it, if, he, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. Because sin and busyness cut off our connection with God and with others and even our own soul. And if we stay hurried, I mean, it's not like we're going to renounce our faith, but we'll become so distracted or rushed or preoccupied that we find ourselves settling for a more mediocre version of our faith. Our souls then get attached to the wrong kind of things. We find ourselves working more, and slowly it leads us to lose love for our families sometimes and for God. So in order to live deep, rich spiritual lives, we have to have space to be present and connected. Being deeply um, formed is incompatible with hurry. We want those clear eyes. The second component of spiritual transformation is intention, and that's just what values do I need to be committed to? It's not just like a desire that we have or a hope, but it's a true decision to engage. You know, like wishing I could do a marathon is a whole lot different than deciding to go for it and train for it. That's what a full heart is about, determination. And then the third component of spiritual transformation is called means. Like, what practical ways or tools do I need to do in order to walk this out? Now, in the next couple weeks, we're going to be talking about all different kinds of practices that we can do to help us to more fully engage and be present with God. And then all of this leads us to knowing that truth. Like, we cannot lose with God. He's got you. He's got our community. He's got our nation. I mean, he's not wringing his hands in fear and anxiety, right? I, I don't know. I don't think any of us knows what it's going to look like. But he's got a plan for us to be a part of, one of hope and of love. So look up.
clear eyes, full heart, can't lose. So in this series, we are in the vision part of what we're trying to do with spiritual transformation, to see more clearly who is God wanting me to become and how am I to be spiritually transformed. So I want to begin with a story that John Ortberg shared about soul and spiritual transformation. He goes, There was once a town in the Alps that straddled the banks of a beautiful stream, and the stream was fed by springs that were old as the earth and deep as the sea. The water was clear like crystal, and children laughed and played beside it, and swans and geese swam on it. You could see the rocks and the sand and the rainbow trout that swarmed at the bottom of the stream. High in the hills, far beyond anyone's sight, there lived an old man who served as the keeper of the springs. He had been hired so long ago that no one could remember a time when he wasn't there. Now he would travel from one spring to another in the hills, removing branches or fallen leaves or debris that might pollute the water. But his work was unseen. One year, the town council decided they had better things to do with their money. No one supervised the old man anyway. They had roads to repair, taxes to collect, and and services to offer, and giving money to an unseen stream cleaner, it had become a luxury that they could no longer afford. So the old man left his post. High in the mountains, the springs began, were untended. Twigs and branches and worse muddied up the liquid flow. Mud and silt compacted the creek bed. Farm waste turned parts of the stream into stagnant bogs. And for a time, no one in the village noticed, but after a while, the water was not the same. It began to look brackish. The swans fell away to live somewhere else. The water no longer had a crisp scent that drew children to play by it. Some people in the town began to grow ill. All noticed the loss of the sparkling beauty that used to flow between the banks of the streams that fed the town. The life of the village was dependent on the stream, and the life of the stream depended on the keeper. The city council reconvened, the money was found, and the old man was was, um, rehired. And after yet another time, the springs then were cleaned. The streams were pure, and children played again on its banks, and illness was replaced by health. The swans came home, and the village came back to life. The life of the village depends on the health of the stream. And the stream is your soul, and you are the keeper. So just take a moment to pause. I'm going to ask two questions. How would you describe your curtain maintenance of your soul, your stream? And on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate the health of your soul? So for maybe some of us, we should clarify, what does the soul mean? The Bible talks about the word soul, but in today's culture, it's almost like that concept of soul doesn't really exist. I I teach neuropsychology, and I value neuroscience, but there is definitely this strong push to say that we are nothing more than our brains. It relegates this idea of a soul to some, like, outdated religious idea. But the truth is, is that the deepest part of us is not seen. I mean, we can see, you know, we can see these synapses firing along our brain's neural pathways, but we can't see things like ideas. The Bible sees us as more than just our brains. You are a soul made by God and for God. Um, In Genesis, it says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Throughout, your, throughout the Bible, your soul is talked about, such as, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. It is incredibly important to pay attention to our souls. The Bible describes the soul as the very essence of who you are. 
It's your soul that is running your life. Not external circumstances, not your thoughts and your feelings, but your soul. And you are that keeper of your soul. So if we're to keep or maintain our souls, it would be important to understand the very a- various aspects of our souls, right? Um, so like if we were to work on a car, we would want to know the various parts, like a carburetor and a battery, and, and know how, what their purpose is and how to put them together. So over the years, I've heard a lot of different explanations of the soul, and I think that Willard and John Ortberg's explanation for it, it's their opinion, um, but it seems to be one of the closest fits for how the Bible describes our soul. So much of what I'm going to share is formed upon their lifelong work. Now, they describe the soul with concentric circles, with the innermost circle being your will. And this makes you unique because this is where you have the capacity to choose, to say yes or no to things and make decisions. Now, in, in ancient literature, including the Bible, your heart and spirit refer to similar aspects of, your, of the will. Now, we often think of the heart more as like related to feelings, but in those days, the heart had more to do with the core of a person, their will. And when we talk about spirit, it's talking more about like a, a person who's spirit and having a strong will. And so we could sit there and see, okay, so this, the will is at the center, and we could think, well, it must be pretty easy to be spiritually transformed because the will helps us to just do it, right? Just do what God says, and boom, you're spiritually transformed. But boy, we know that doesn't work quite that, right? The problem is our wills do not line up perfectly with God's will, and it makes a mess. Like, we see our wills making a mess because we gossip, we worry, we self-promote, we get judgmental, we avoid healthy confrontation, we hold grudges, we have impure thoughts. Our will is good at making simple and even large commitments, but the will is incredibly inept at overriding these deeply rooted habits and attitudes that we can have. You know, we find ourselves playing games with our will because we want to do what we want to do, right? And there's, um, we find ways to rationalize our choices. A classic example is someone who wants to lose weight, but they really, really want to donut. So what do they do? They pray, God, if there is an open parking spot in front of the donut shop, I'll know that you, your will for me is to have a donut. And sure enough, seven times around the block, there's a spot in front of that donut shop, right? You know, it's, it's, it's fascinating to see the research done on how our will works. You know, the question they're asking, like, is our will more like a computer that you plug in and it sort of stays on and keeps giving power? Or is our will more like a hammer that we get to pick up and use whenever it's needed? Or is our will more like a muscle um, where, you know, it can just get tired? There was an experiment where they studied um, two different groups, and they had one group, they had them begin the study by resisting temptation. So they had to refuse to eat a chocolate chip cookie. The control group, they didn't have to resist anything. They could have the cookies if they wanted. And so then both groups were given problems that were impossible to solve. And then they watched to see how long each person would keep persisting trying to solve those impossible problems. And what they discovered is that those who had to begin by resisting eating the cookies, they gave up trying to solve the problems the quickest. And these findings emphasize that research that our will is most like a muscle. It's like similar to doing a push-up. Eventually, you you can only do less and less and less. You don't have enough strength to keep going. You just can't do it. So the will isn't like a computer that you can plug it in or that it's a hammer that you get to pick up and use whenever. You only have so much willpower, and it fatigues quickly. And when the will is gone, it's gone. And so there's another experiment about judges, and you may have heard this one, about whether they're going to give parole to prisoners. 
And it's risky for a judge to grant parole because if that person violates parole, then the judge could get in trouble for having given parole. So there's, this is an act of will. Risking anything requires willpower. So what was discovered is that if you were up for parole, you have a higher likelihood of getting parole from a judge if, you, um, if your case came up in the middle of the morning than if you came up in the later afternoon. Because what's happening in the middle of the morning, the judge is more well-fed, has a higher energy, and is more willing to take a risk. But if your case came up around 4 o'clock, the judge is tired, less willing to take a risk. The prisoner's record actually has less to do with getting parole than the amount of willpower that's available to the judge at that time. So I don't know if, that, if we can make a, like maybe that's when we should ask a boss like for a raise in the earlier part of the day than maybe the later. The will is just an incredibly important, but it is limited. It, it can make decisions like taking a new job, moving, getting married, um, but it is bad at stopping those behaviors and attitudes um, that have become established. And that's why if somebody was like struggling with addictions like, or a negative attitude, simply saying, just stop it. You know, just get happy. Um, it isn't going to work. It's trying to get the will to do something that the will is not meant to do. So let's say if you struggle with um, any kind of unhealthy behavior, but we'll say maybe like if you're struggling with porn, you're doing well until you have had a really hard work week, right? And then you had had to have some difficult conversations and you are exhausted. So you come home and you have to realize you've used up your will probably. And so when you come home, you're most likely going to make some pretty bad choices if you don't have something else to help protect you. Your will is sometimes thought of like a cup. Like you only have a certain amount, and when it's gone, it's gone. Therefore, you have to plan really wisely and learn how to use other aspects of your soul to help bring that change. But God gave us a will. It's a good thing. I mean, it can get messed up when it's enslaved to sin. But the good news is that our wills are really made to live surrendering to God. And that's why you see like in the 12-step program that they don't emphasize willpower the method, as the method that works. They focus on surrender. Now, the second circle is the mind. In, in the ancient world, the mind referred to both a person's thoughts and feelings. Our mind is what we are conscious of. It's every thought and feeling. It's our, conscious, our conscience, our values. It's the things that we live for. Um, it's with our minds that we consciously are aware of God. You know, so our, every thought can pull us closer to God or it can move us farther away which is why Paul emphasizes how our minds need to be, to be changed when he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that leads us to the next circle, our body. Your body has this opportunity to be in charge. You know, our bodies have all kinds of ha appetites and habits, good and bad, right? So what often happens, in, though, instead of my body obeying my will, um, my will gets enslaved to what my body wants. Um, this is where, again, addictions come, how habits can be very powerful. Part of the way that God made us is that we're able to offload enormous amounts of our lives, our behaviors to our habits. And when that happens, we're able to do things without our minds uh, that don't require them to have to work so much. It's like, if somebody is angry or anxious or joyful, that is a... A habit. Those are tendencies that they've gotten into. And those habits get deeply embedded in us. Similar to like when we learn how to drive a car, right? At first you have to think so, be so focused. Do I turn the, do I hit the brakes now? When do I press the pedal? When do I look in the rearview mirror? But eventually they become like habits, right? 
all those become things that we do that we don't have to think about. And the vast majority of your life is outsourced to habits. Habits are a good thing, you know. Um, that's good, and it's good, except when sin gets involved in those habits, into our thoughts and into our values, the way we look at sexuality, how we see others. And that's why, when we start talking more about spiritual practices, they're just so important. And we're going to learn and practice more of those in the coming weeks, because rather than you just trying to use your will to override negative habits, which is not going to work, we use these practices to allow God to rewire these tendencies. It's not about trying harder with our will, like, I'm going to be more joyful, I'm going to be more patient. We have to address what's going on inside. Otherwise, we're going to set ourselves up for frustration and defeat. And it leads us to this truth that John Ortberg says, and we've, we've mentioned it before, but habits eat willpower for breakfast. So, um, so we put um, into place new habits that can create new pathways for our bodies and our minds to operate differently. Now, Willard includes yet another circle on the soul, and it's the social. And this is though, even though people are outside of our bodies, your relationships with others get internalized. They become a part of who you are. And there was a book a while back called Bowling Alone. Now, it was written by a sociologist from Princeton who grew up actually near Lake Erie. He talked about the critical social relationships and how critical they are to our well-being. One of the studies found that people who have great health habits, like exercising, they get good sleep, they eat well, they see their doctor regularly, um, but if they live in isolation, they are twice as likely to die as people who have bad health habits, but they live in community. So it led the author to say, it's better to eat Twinkies with your friends than eat broccoli by yourself. But, you know, and I'm not, so I was doing some more research on it, and, and the, the CDC in 2019 showed how social isolation increases our health risks. Did you, I don't know if you've seen some of those stats, but it, it has a 50% increase of dementia, 29% increase in heart disease, 32% increase in the risk of stroke, not to mention higher rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide. I mean, that makes us really wonder about, you know, all the social ramifications of COVID. So what we know is that our relationships affect us greatly, and it's very concerning, and they affect our soul. And then the final and outer circle is the soul. It represents this whole combination of bringing all of these parts into a single whole person. Now the soul seeks for harmony and integration of all of these aspects of who we are. That's why integrity is such a deep soul word, because we want to seek to integrate our will and our mind, our thoughts, our feelings, our body into the one person that, and as we connect with God. You know, throughout the scripture, the soul is addressed almost like a third person when it says, like, why are you cast down, O my soul? Or, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. One of the most striking and maybe misunderstood statements about the soul in the Bible is when Jesus gives this observation, and we see it both in Mark and Matthew, when he says, for what will it profit a man if he, if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Ortberg said, I have always thought that this verse meant that it does no good to get a lot of money and pleasure if you end up going to hell. And although true, the context of what Jesus is talking about here is more about how we will lose our soul. Like if, if we allow our soul to disintegrate, to become more fractured or broken by running after every kind of desire and our thoughts and allow greed or anger or resentment or bitterness to rule over our will, then we are going to be at this war within ourselves. 
We cannot have a sense of a soul satisfaction, let alone a meaningful life, because we would be a lost soul. Sin is a cancer to the soul. It disintegrates us. It makes the various aspects of our soul toxic, and a meaningful good life is impossible. Yet we are made for connection with God and others. Jesus came to redeem our soul. Our job is to learn how to let him in. So what does a healthy soul look like? What's our vision in a healthy soul? The body is trained to obey the will, and the will consistently chooses what the mind knows to be good, and all the parts work together in harmony, connected to God and others. So I want to be really clear. The process of spiritual transformation is different than self-help or psychology's focus on improving yourself, right? Spiritual formation focuses on our souls as we are connected to God. So to focus on ourselves apart from God, I mean, there's some good wisdom that we can get. Obviously, I like psychology. I teach it. Um, but, but to focus on ourselves apart from God, it would be losing awareness of what matters most. So for me, this, this last week was just filled with a lot of sadness. Um, and it wasn't just about our country. There was, there's just been so many people dealing with incredibly difficult life circumstances, cancer, there's there was an overdose, death, there's divorce. It, I mean, it felt like everywhere I turned, lives were fractured. And so in order to deal with that stress, right, I went and I re-listened to Russ and Tori Taft. Um, they have a story of a spiritual transformation that just brings me so much hope. And I don't know if very many of you remember of them. Um, they, well, they have a video that, that, that came out about two years ago called I Still Believe. But Russ Taft was an influential Christian singer back in the 80s and 90s, maybe even. Um, And there was such a depth to his voice and a realness to his lyrics, so I've just watched him over the years. And it has been a very difficult road for him. He grew up with abusive parents, both parents. Um, An alcoholic father who was a preacher who used religion abusively as well. Russ was set up for a fractured soul, and he struggled for decades living two lives. He had one that life that he describes that he loved Jesus so very much, and the other one that just would escape through alcohol and efforts to try to keep at bay his pain, uh, the pain and the memories that he had, you know, because he was always told over and over again, Tafts are losers. And though despite the fact that he, when he performed with the Imperials, he won numerous Grammys for his performances, he lived with such shame um, because he thought if people really knew him, they would agree that he was a failure. So he lived this double life for decades. He tried not to drink before he would sing about Jesus in large concerts, you. And yet afterwards, he would just drink himself to sleep. And he almost lost his marriage and family numerous times. Yet he just kept on this journey, seeking God in the midst of all the disintegration, all the fracturing that he had in his soul. And it's so powerful to hear Russ and his wife share God's transforming power in them. I mean, they're both shocked to see how all that mess has been so changed. I mean, they see clearly these traces of God, how he was there in the midst of so much pain and confusion, consistently bringing redemption. Now, Russ would say that the process was very hard, but oh so worth it. To have stayed on this spiritual transformation journey where they are now experiencing such peace and joy, I mean, that is a healthy, integrated soul. So today when, you know, I listen to Russ sing, his voice is not maybe as beautiful as it once was because he has lived a hard life. 
But when he sings songs, like the depth of it is just so much more true. There's this peace and freedom that his soul sings that you do not often hear. And it's the power of a life that has consistently chosen for the long haul to follow Jesus, even when things feel so fractured. And it gives me hope in a time where we are now that we need. And that's what we're going for, right? For our souls to be congruent, to be connected with God, to live in a way that's peaceful and at rest despite our circumstances. Willard points out, he says, if your soul is healthy, no external circumstance can destroy your life. If your soul is unhealthy, no external circumstance can redeem your life. So you, your job, your relationships, your world can be a mess, yet your soul can still be at peace. So we need to take the time to be aware of our thoughts. Are they healthy? Are they wise? Or what's going on with my desires? What kind of habits um, am I falling into? Am I aligned with God? Who am I becoming? You have a soul. And for you, have, for you to have a soul that's healthy, we all need to put it as a high priority. So what you do with your soul matters more than any circumstance in your life. So the action step for this week, I would say, is if you believe that statement, what you do with your soul matters more than any circumstance in your life, how would this influence the decisions that you're going to make this week? About what you're going to watch, or who you're going to talk to, or how you're going to spend your time. How would it influence how you spend um, your time and how you talk with others? Because you are the keeper of your soul. God is encouraging us to be more intentional about our souls, and more than anything we can accomplish for God, this is for the greatest gift that we get to give him, is who we are. Are we connected to him and becoming who he created us to be? So as we close, you know, for some of, um, for some of this, may, this may feel like it's too challenging of a journey. Like, I'm tired. You know, I've got a lot going on, you might say. I don't like to be that introspective. I'm just tired. I get that. Um, but to be reminded, it's not all on you. God is wanting and waiting to be more fully a part of your life in bringing this change. Your, your main job is learning how to surrender and be aware. And in reality, you know, we are in this game of life whether we like it or not, right? So do you want to be on the sidelines and just wait it out until things maybe get better? Um, I've always had this fear that I was in, the, in, a, in a game and I'm the one that would catch the ball accidentally and then I run in the wrong direction. Um, but, you know, we are in this game. And so how do we want to live it? So regardless of what you might be feeling um, at this moment, I just would like for you to imagine God speaking to you and lifting your head. And he would be saying, um, look at me, clear eyes, full heart, can't lose. So God, we just want to, we come before you and we thank you that you desire and have made us for to be integrated and to be whole. That there is a peace that you can give that is beyond all understanding. Lord, we pray that you would give um, us all wisdom to know what are the next steps that we can do to open our hearts more to who you are our souls more to who you are. Lord, we thank you that you are a never-ending um, source of love and hope, of peace and patience, and that we can never, ever get enough of you. We can never get our fill from who you are. So I pray your, um, 
I pray use your strength, your grace to be upon each person. Help us to choose you more. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.